Psalm uh, number three. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Amen. We now come to the very first uh, psalm, uh, working our way through the psalms, that has a descriptive title at the very top. And maybe a, a quick note about these titles or these superscriptions above the psalms. They make uh, part of, they are part of the inspired Hebrew text of the Masoretic text. And so uh, you'll find that when they're written there, they're actually part of verse 1, or they are the whole of verse 1. And if memory serves me correct, there are one or two psalms where the superscription is so long that in the Hebrew text it's verses 1 and 2. And so the actual psalm would begin at 3 in the Hebrew. Now the earliest Bible translations that we would know, um, for example, uh, translated into the Latin, that's called the Vulgate. And even the early English translation, the earliest English translation, which was by Wycliffe, and he translated from the Vulgate. Um, and even the Geneva version, which was first edition 1550, um, into English, they all incorporated the titles into the verse, because that's exactly what the Masoretic text did. And so they kept the exact versification. But in order to make a, a clear distinction between the superscription, with its information, its direction, its authorship, and musical points, and the actual psalm itself, the authorized version translators have made a, a separation between the two. So they've had to separate, they've, se they've chose to separate the two. So the actual poem, the psalm, the song, the hymn um, that, that we have is, is clearly separated. And so they reversified the psalms. And in many ways, that actually makes the third and all the other psalms with a with the superscription, fit the order of Psalms 1 and 2. Because Psalms 1 and 2 do not have any, any superscription. They just go straight into the psalm, and the psalm is clearly verse 1 of the psalms. Let me just say that the numbering of the verses in the Old Testament is ancient. It goes back to uh, before the Masoretes themselves. The versification in the New Testament is more recent probably started in the 1300s and was established in print form by Stephanus um, in his mm, 1550 text. But anyway, that's just a by the way. 
In any case, the, so the superscription it remains translated as much as possible and is set just above the text. So when you read a psalm, they understand this is, this is inspired text. The Lord is speaking to me. There is something in that text that, that uh, whether I understand it or not, um, it's still the Lord's word to me. And so that's why I always read it. That's why you should read it. It's part of the inspired word of God. But now coming less general, more specific to Psalm 3 itself, uh, we see that we're brought to a specific historical moment in the life of David. David is the author, a Psalm of David. And then we see that this is a specific moment. It says, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And we, we could go into a lot of detail, but we won't. But King David himself, he wrote this psalm when he was fleeing from Absalom. So Absalom had, uh, had made, uh, made a, an, a successful, very temporary, but a successful, um, seditious uh, move of rebellion to take the throne of Jerusalem and therefore of whole of Israel. Remember, Israel is a united kingdom at this particular moment. And not only was it seditious toward the throne, but it was murderous. He was out for the life and the blood of his own father. So in the, this fleeing away from a woeful situation, which we understand, we don't get many details of the specifics in Psalm 3, but if you know your Old Testament, you'll, you'll know that, uh, that, that history. Um, what we see therefore, he fled, he fled, he, he, took, he took most of his family that were with him, and servants, he left some choice servants behind, he left his concubines behind, uh, but his wives and his, and his, his, his any, if there were any younger children at that time, there might have been a few, uh, and his people that wanted to go with him, uh, that he thought that he could protect, uh, that he did, he took with them, and there's a whole, there's a whole history to that uh, exodus from, from Jerusalem at that time. So that caused him not only to flee from Jerusalem, to flee from the throne, to flee from Absalom, but as we see more especially in this psalm, to flee to the Lord. He fled to the Lord. Uh, uh, and we see that in this, uh, this psalm, which is a very prayerful psalm. Welcome. So we're looking through Psalm 3. And so the title of this study then is we're considering David fleeing from Absalom, but the psalm itself tells us that he's fleeing to the Lord. And so the title of the psalm is Fleeing to Christ. Fleeing to Christ. And as we open up the psalm then in verse 1, we see the many foes, the many foes that surrounded David. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. We'll look at what that word means very shortly. So let us, let us read and understand immediately from the historical context. David, as we understand when we read uh, Chronicle, we read Samuel, we read Kings, uh, Chronicles and other places, but mostly those, are, well, and in the Psalms, various places in the Psalms, we do understand there were many that hated him. He had friends that hated him. His own king hated him. King Saul hated him. Um, so even before his coronation, he was hated. He was, he was hunted down. Saul, an apostate, decided to root out 
the Lord's anointed, the Lord's replacement for him to establish his own earthly dynasty, his own, his own house, his own royal house. We also know that outside of Israel, he was hated by the Philistines because the Lord had given him such strength and such blessing and such grace, we could say, and we can say, um, that he was able to destroy many of King Saul's enemies at the time, and when he himself was on the throne, he destroyed them all, so that there was a time that there was peace round about, so that when Solomon, his son, whose name means peace, uh, ascended to the throne, the, there was a, a, a peaceful kingdom, there was peace around from the tribes and the nations around that had become tribute to the throne of David, and there was peace and friendship between many of the kingdoms round about. But not at this time. So he, he was hated by the Philistines even before he became king. And even though he made an alliance with one particular Philistinian king, uh, all the rest of the kings still didn't trust him, and actually rightly so, because he wasn't on their side ever. But now we have him, he's settled in the, he becomes king at Hebron uh, for a number of years, something like 14 years, and then he becomes king of the whole of Israel uh, from, uh, with his throne in, in Jerusalem. But now what we have is his kingdom is settled, his throne is in there, but we have his own son Absalom who ends up doing something very similar to Saul, that is hunting down David. It doesn't carry on for as many years by any means. It's different. But we see that Absalom, who, who, who wasn't just, uh, he wasn't just a rebel. Absalom is, is far worse than David. It's far worse than Saul. Uh, Absalom uh, desired to commit what we call patricide or parricide, the, the killing of your father. That's what his uh, intention was to do. And, and to bring down the name of his father, he... he he shamed his father's name by taking the, all of his father's concubines and publicly um, um, taking them. It was one of his first acts when he went into uh, Jerusalem and took over the, the, the city, took over the throne, took over the palace. And how did he do that? Did he do that with, with honesty? No, he did that with, with, with secrecy. He did that with manipulation. He did that with with uh, lying words. What, 2 Samuel 15 and verse 4 gives us an example that what Absalom did, he stayed in the, in the, in the gate. And of course, if you know anything about the gates, the, it wasn't just a, a one gate opening into the city. It was a gate that opened into a, a, a left turn or a right turn entrance corridor, which led to another entrance into the city. And in that sort of open walled chamber, it's where uh, an awful lot of the taxes and the excise would be, would, would be taken for the goods that were coming into the city, but also where the elders of the city, that is the civil magistrates, would sit and hear counsel, uh, or give counsel and hear, um, hear um, oh dear me, they would hear the um, issues of the people bringing court cases and they would sit and judge the like, and sometimes the king would be there. Uh, to do those things as well and hold his day of court. But Absalom, he settled himself down in the, in the Jerusalem uh, gate uh, way. And it says there in verse 4, Absalom said, moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him 
justice. In other words, just drip, drip. Just a little bit of a question mark he's putting over the, the goodness of his father, the king, over the righteousness of his father, the king, over the wisdom of his father, the king. Just dropping those little words every now and again, a little look of disappointment, a, a little word. If, if only I could, if, if I was in that position, oh, you know, I would help. I would plead your cause, but unfortunately that's not the case. And so Absalom is, a, is now a rebel from within the Old Testament church. And he's a rebel from within the household of David, and he has now become his father's public enemy. And so Absalom, as we've just read, he took away the heart of Jerusalem, not 100% of the people, but enough, and of Israel and the tribes against his father. Having slandered his father and undermined his father to, ra to raise his own profile, to bring glory to himself, he now comes and begins to hunt down his father. Hence, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, and how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. We're not, we're not just talking about a little group of supporters for Absalom. We're talking a lot of the nation's heart has been turned away from David and is now against David. Let us consider briefly the greater David, that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He also must contend with great and public rejection from his own people. His own, very own people. Uh, rejection, there was hatred, and ultimately the crucifixion that he bore because the Jewish religious authorities were against him. They hated him. And yet he had every right to rule them. He had every right to sit on that, that, that throne of David. And yet they were a nation of Absaloms. Uh, they had become a nation of Absaloms. And it was these Absaloms, especially in the power uh, structure of the day in the religious authorities, that like Absalom, manipulated the people. We hear that in Matthew 27, verses 20 to 22. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Uh, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. Christ, the anointed one. David, the anointed one. The heart of Absalom. The rebel. The murderer. The hater. The liar. Which brings us then to all those that would bear the name of Christ, the Christian. The Lord is clear and has been throughout his word that we will have enemies and hardships in life. That there will be many uh, that are against us. Many that be against us. Many that say, many that rise up. Many that say of my soul there's no help for him in God. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ has primed us for that. In many places, one place very clearly, John 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
Now, we might, we might make the false presumption that once we're saved and we're in the church, that everything is safe. We're, we're safe within the church. We're all sinners saved uh, from sin. We're, we're all together. We're all in the same boat. We were all in the same boat before salvation. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's grace enters our life, and we are saved from ourselves and from our sins. And you think there would be some sort of safety within the church. Well, we've just seen in the Old Testament church that was not the case for David. In the New Testament, or the crossover period of time when Christ is in having his earthly ministry, that wasn't the case for him either. And unfortunately, it's not the case for us, because the world and worldly behavior is still to be found within the church. And we've got to understand what worldly behavior is. A lot of people, when they think worldly behavior, they think drink, they think drugs, they think fornication. And that's true. That's true, but that's not the full list. It's not the full list. I've, I've heard a number of, uh, attended many uh, certain gospel preachings, and, and, and you know, when people are, are spoken out about the, the public sins, that they're the obvious ones that fall from the lips of the preacher, but they're not the only ones. You know, there's theft, there's, there's um, being dishonest with your tax returns, there's the gossiping about other people, uh, there's well, should we just say rebellion of all sorts that we're seeing in here. Manipulation, m emotional manipulation, the abuse of a authority. These things we find in the church, they're worldly. They're worldly because they're unchristian. It's not how we are to behave with each other. But unfortunately, being a church in the world, the world is very much in the church, even in the most strict and conservative of churches. It can take place many Absaloms in the church. And even though they would put themselves forward as Absalom did, you know, very, very spiritual, but they are rebels as Absalom was, rebels against the Anointed One, and in the Christian's case, rebels against Christ. And rebels against uh, Christ's church. So there are many foes that are being dealt with here, many thousands he even uses the name ten thousands, myriads, literally, myriads of people, but that's in verse 6. So there are many foes. You may know that in your own personal experience of your Christian walk. Many foes. Maybe you have many friends, and then you come to Christ, and then you've got many foes. But those many foes bring us in verse 3 to the one protector. There are many foes, but we have one protector. And he says in verse 3, but thou, but thou, O Lord art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. You know, we could sermonize, I could sermonize on the truths of these, just these two verses for a long time, but I'm attempting to get through this one psalm in one evening. But in brief, then, we will just quickly look at when being surrounded by these many foes, what does David do? He looks to the Lord. He looks unto the Lord for his protection, and he calls the Lord, he, he names him, he gives him an epithet, three, three different epithets, three different titles. He calls him firstly a shield, and he calls him my glory, and then he calls him a, a lifter up of my head, a, a, head, a head lifter. And we'll just briefly look at what that, what, what that means. There is no clearer image of protection than a shield. You so say, yeah, the Bible does talk about a high tower and things like that. That's true, but you've got to run to it. 
You've got to see it, find it, and run to it. And once you're in it, you're safe. But what is a shield? For, a, for the soldier of Christ, your shield is ever with you. So you need protection now. The shield is there. What is that shield? Well, we looked in Ephesians 6 and understood what it was. It was the shield of faith. And what is that faith? The faith is in Jesus, but it is in the Jesus of the Scriptures. So it is it's the Word of God and the living Word of God, Jesus himself being that shield. Not just words about Jesus, but the words that speak of him so he is our shield. It says what it says here. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. Jesus Christ being our own shield at all times. Secondly, he's my glory. Christ himself is our glory. And the, the, again, I'm, I'm limiting myself. So you might say, well, it's, you're only briefly mentioning it. I'm doing that for a reason. But Christ is my glory because it's not my works, it's not my status, it's his work, it's his status that gives me any glory. And, and, and there is my glory. What can I boast in? Again, that word for glory is used in those two ways. What is my glory? My glory is my holiness, it is my righteousness, and both of which I get from Jesus Christ, having nothing myself. So anything good that is to be found in me is given to me. And what can I boast in, in my own Christian walk, in, in what I've done, in who I am, how long I've been in the church? No, I may and only may boast in Jesus Christ. So he is my glory, he is my boasting, as well as I will bathe in his glory by his grace forever and ever. Again, there's limit myself to those few comments. But he's also thirdly a headlifter the lifter up of my head. And that may sound quite strange language, but let me bring you then to the throne room, the throne room of a king. And there is a, a suppliant. There is somebody who's coming and beseeching the king. And so they've come, they've, they've beckoned forward, the, 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 the scepter's been lifted up and they're allowed to come forward and they cast themselves before the king, before his feet. Their head is on the floor and they're calling out for mercy to him. And what is this lifting of the head? It is the king in mercy reaching forward and taking you by the chin and lifting your head up. Your head is down. In, 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 in a correct fear of God. But then the, but then the Lord himself comes and lifts, lifts up your chin. You would look then him in the face and you would see that there is mercy, that there is help, that, that there is kindness as you behold the face of the king. And, and those three things are really then summed up in verse 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. So there are many foes, many, many, and surprisingly, where you will find them. You'll find them in your congregation, maybe in your family, just like David with Absalom, in, 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 at work. People you thought you could rely on. And maybe it's a combination. A family member at work who professes Christ, and they stab you in the back. Happened to David, happened to Christ. It happens to Christians repeatedly. But what the answer is, is verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. And in verse 4, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. We see that David is 
is doing the right thing. David has been the wonderful example for us, is that when we're surrounded by enemies and surrounded by calamity, what must we remember to do, fellow believers, is call upon the Lord. But thou, O Lord, art a shield. So the many foes, the one protector, who is also the one sustainer, we see in verse 5. He sustains us. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. Essentially, it's saying if we understand, if we take to heart those verses that we've just read, if we understand that he is a shield, that he is our glory, um, that he is glorious, that he is the lifter up of our head, that he, 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 he hears our prayers, he answers our prayers, and as we know, he himself prays for us, that we should be able to enjoy a sweet and deep sleep. Sleep is sometimes robbed from us, and quite often from the cares of the day and the worries around us, those who are against us. Why did he say that? Why did she do that? And then we're, we're focusing on the problem that we want to flee from. But Fine, flee from the problem, uh, but flee into the arms of Christ in prayer. Tell him all those things that he already knows. Tell him. It's a very human thing, may I say, without wanting to be hyper-spiritual about these things. But you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. I hope you have that expression on this side of the pond. But, but that's one of the great benefits of counseling and other such things. Just, and even, even, even confession in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Just getting things off your chest just makes you feel a bit better. You've shared your problem. Now, I'm not going into all the theological problems and the blasphemies of the Roman Catholic Church or anything else about Freudian or Jungian um, um, psychoanalysis. But the point is, in a very natural way, it's good just to unburden yourself. But that's not enough. The Bible doesn't say that's enough. Speak to the wall, it could say, but it doesn't. The Lord God of heaven and earth has speak to me. Speak to me and you're doing something far better than just temporarily unburdening your conscience and your heart. You're actually speaking to the one who will help. The one who is the protector is also the one who will sustain you through this difficulty. Because as we know in our own experience, and as the Bible clearly teaches us, there can be difficulties for him, for David. It was a, a question of weeks before that rebellion was over. As regards to King Saul and against him, it was years. Uh, the, the, the oppression of, of the Egyptians that was building up over a period of 400 and uh, plus years. And so it took the Lord a long time to answer, but he did answer, and he answered because they did pray. And they had to pray because they'd come to an end of themselves. Their religion wasn't good enough. Their, their identity as the children of Abraham wasn't good enough. They finally got onto their own knees and were calling out to the Lord for help, and he answered them. So he, it, it's important to know that it is by unburdening ourselves that, yes, physi physiologically it's good for us, but, but, for, but for our life in its totality, it's good that God hears our complaint because he will answer it. And he sustains us through that, through that period, through that period of, of that complaint. So we may sleep soundly because we are to be found in Christ. We may sleep soundly because we live for Christ. 
And we sleep soundly because Christ sustains us. Christ, if you know from the John 1, John chapter 1, it says that he was the light of man. He gives life to everybody that is on the planet. So he gave us our life, and by the gospel he gave us new life, and there is the promise in Jesus Christ of eternal life. Uh, he sustains us in everything. Every heartbeat is a gift from Christ. We could then borrow the, the biblical language uh, to the just and the unjust. But we're thinking especially of those who are just, who've been made just by faith. And Christ it is that sustains us. And so it's very important to understand that when problems do rob us of sleep, we'll wake up in the middle of the night and we've still got those things on our head, or we say, how are these problems ever going to be taken away from us? Come back to Psalm 3. I've cried unto the Lord with my voice. He's heard me out of his holy hill, and then I will lay me down to sleep. Lord, help me to lay down and sleep and trust in thee, answering my prayers, sustaining me, protecting me, and let me rest in the arms of Jesus. And so it's good to be reminded of that, that we rest in his protection and sustaining power and in his love. So the many foes, the one protector, the one sustainer, but then we see the thousand punished. The thousand punished in verses 6 and 7. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. So a couple of things here then that we are to be encouraged. We are to be so encouraged when we realize, even though there are many that hate us, the government hates us, there are people in, the, in our neighborhoods that hate us, um, and if we're lucky enough, there are people in neighboring acreages that can hate us. But even when the whole world surrounds us with hatred and violence, Listen to what David says. And remember, David has, he has gone over the Kidron Valley. He has gone into the Judean wilderness. He is fleeing from actual thousands of people against him. But he's saying, I will not be afraid. Is he humanly afraid? Afraid, yes, I think. But he's saying, but I will not be afraid. As if he's arguing with himself. They hate me, but I will not be afraid. We could even say, even of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about, we may take it into that sort of theor theoretical realm, but for him it was real. But let us learn that lesson, because there are people that hate you. There are people that would like your downfall. But David says, I will not be afraid. Then speak after David. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. Why? Well, because... Here we have the solemn truth regarding all those that remain the enemies of Christ in verse 7. So here we have another petition. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the young God. He, he's considering what the Lord has done in the past, what the Lord will then do again, because he, he has prayed for help. And what did the Lord do to Saul? What did the Lord do to the house of Saul? Well, maybe even more than what we read here. The smiting of all mine enemies upon the cheekbone that has broken the teeth of the ungodly. We could even read verses 6 and 7 as Christ upon the cross. 
As Christ looks at the cross and he sees them all, we go to verse uh, to uh, Psalm 22 for more details. But he wasn't afraid. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. That solemn truth then is those that are the enemies of Christ, that remain the enemies of Christ. And then we think, yes, of course, they will, they, 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 will, they will be cast into hell and later on after the resurrection into the lake of fire. And that's very true. But what this verse is teaching us is that the Lord visits temporal, temporal rebukes and punishments even now. On this side of death, on this side of glory, that he comes up and he casts down and he strikes. But there's mercy in there also. He did he not do the same thing to Saul of Tarsus? He came along and, and knocked him off his, his donkey. He knocked him off his ass onto the, onto, the, onto, onto the road on the way to Damascus. And it is possible that when we uh, consider the, 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 the fear that he had and the bemoaning that he made towards the Lord, 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 what will thou have me to do? that there was a fear, and it is possible, I was listening very recently to a sermon, that even as he was standing there just a couple of chapters earlier, maybe one chapter earlier, and, and, and the coats are being cast at his feet as he's there, approving of the stoning of Stephen, that maybe his heart, his stony heart, was also being troubled. The convicting work of the Holy Ghost, even at work then. That's not written, that's presumption or presupposition. But it's possible... But what we can see is there, even there, that the Lord would have mercy upon our enemies. But that's the Lord's business. To do this as he sees fit. So the, 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 the temporal rebukes and punishments upon them that hate the Lord's people. So God is against them when they are against us. Because when they're against us, they're against him. So how tight the union is with Jesus Christ. As God sees us united by faith with Jesus Christ, uh, that we become his people, yes, and he is our king, but we become the children of God because Christ is the Son of God. Our union with the Son makes us and causes us to be adopted. We're not going to go into those details now. But his enemies become our enemies and our enemies are his enemies. So the many foes, the one protector, the one sustainer, the thousands punished, very briefly. And finally, we close with the three Selahs. The three Selahs. Before we come to verse 8, I just want to make this comment because it's going to bring in verses 2 and 4 as well. What is that word, Selah? Some people say Psila. That's fine, they're wrong. But... Uh, if you were to pronounce it as an English word, it's sila, but it, it's a short E in Hebrew. Um, so allow me some pedantic room for maneuver. It's quite an obscure word, word um, salah. It comes from the verb salah, um, salah, sorry, which means, um, well, before I get into the meaning, all I want to say is you'll notice it's not translated. So there are certain terms that are not translated. Nuganoth, Nuhiloth, we'll see in verses in Psalms four and five, uh, and here we have the word, the word Salah, and you only find it in something like twenty-one times in the Psalms. So it's not 
very frequently, although you might think it is. It's three times in, Haga, uh, in Habakkuk, Habakkuk, and that's it. And there's no simple translation for it, and so the authorized uh, version translators have left it untranslated and allowing the preacher to explain what it means, or else you'll have a long sentence every time to bring out the full meaning. But the word literally means to lift up or to exalt, to lift up or exalt. And the most probable explanation is, is this, and I'll read it out, is that while the psalm was being sung, the instrumental accompaniment, so we're thinking of that in a temple, when we're thinking of uh, uh, the psalm being sung to music, that it was being sung and the instrumental accompaniment was, was, was fairly soft so that the words could be heard until the word Selah is pronounced. And so literally you can just imagine the, 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 the five instruments that were allowed uh, being lifted up. Uh, the volume and maybe even if it was, a, if it was the one of the cornets, they would lift it up physically. But the idea is, is, is you will increase the volume. And then the singing was paused for a short time while the music is playing, a, a loud interlude. And so you'll often hear people say, well, Selah just means pause. It doesn't mean pause. It means lift up or exalt. But that might have been the resulting uh, truth within the singing of the psalm, that there was a pause. So pause would be a wrong translation, but that's what it meant in its... You can understand why the authorized translators just, <laughs> just leave the Hebrew in. It's easier. But that seems to be uh, the reason why it was a lifting up of the volume for a short time before they continued. But what about us in this post-temple New Testament church? What, what does Selah mean to us then? Well, I think we can best understand it as an exclamation mark. It's an exclamation mark. It's, it's something that we need to take notice of in a, in a, in a more special way. We say, yes, there are eight verses. Um, they are all the Word of God. Well, we, sh we should actually go back and say the Masoretic text has nine verses. <laughs> Let's not complicate things more. But of all the verses here, they're all of God. They're all important. Yes, they are. But yet the Lord puts his own exclamation mark on three verses so that we should pause. We should pause. We should consider what is it that the Lord is, is bringing out here. And, and when you do that, when you realize when you've just read a Salah, just go back. Go back to that, that clause or back to that whole verse and just consider this, that the Lord is saying, that, look at this more deeply, you. There's something here. Now, we have three Salahs in this psalm. Firstly, interestingly enough, the discouragement of the godless against the godly. I'm saying, you know, forget about God helping you. There's no hope. There's just no hope for you. And then God says, exclamation mark, look at this. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to the, what they're saying about me. And listen to what they're saying about you. That they're, they're, they're pulling the rug from under your feet. And then we get a second sila, which wonderfully contradicts in verse 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. Touche. There is help for the godly to be found in God. Many there be which say of my soul there is no help for him in God, and yet God says that they're all liars and there is help for you to be found in 
God. I cried unto him and he heard me. You see, this enemy might be breathing down your neck. It might be very close to you in your family or in your church or wherever they are. This enemy that's against you breathing on your neck, very close to you physically, and yet you call out to the, to the Lord of the universe, to the, to the King of kings. You, you call out to, to the very throne of heaven so far away, shall we say, on the other side of the universe. And God hears our prayers and answers our prayers and protects our prayers and becomes a shield for us. And the third salah is this, and that's the truth, that God is so interested in our lives, He's concerned with our needs, He loves His people, He wants to hear our prayers, and He wants to protect us in all the dangers of life, and that's confirmed when He says in verse 8, salvation belongeth unto the Lord, thy blessing is upon thy people salah. We could just say, well, just take that last clause, but I think we take the, the whole of verse 8 together. Salvation is the glor most glorious of all blessings. And so we think in David, David is fleeing, and, and, and he flees to the Lord, and then we have a problem when we flee to the Lord, and we know this, that he will save us. Salvation, being saved, being helped, is that word. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. And that word for salvation, I can't remember having looked it up this time, but I'm, I'm convinced that it is. It is that word that we actually get the word Jesus from. In Yehoshua, Joshua, we have that last form, Shua. But there is that word for translation, which is, which if I can remember correctly, is, is, is Yeshua. Almost like, almost like the Hebrew name for Jesus. And that's also the Hebrew name for salvation and help. Jesus belongeth unto the Lord. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Jehovah, Shua, Jehovah saves. So he will save us but he will not save our enemies because they will not flee to the Lord themselves. But they should, they should, because salvation only is found in the Lord. It only f belongs to the Lord. We see here that salvation is, is termed as a personal possession of the Lord. So if you want to be saved, if you want to have that possession yourself, you must go to him who has it, and that is the Lord. And finally, we understand then that when we do flee sin and Satan, we come into this kingdom of this Lord, and we enter by faith into the people of God, that God's curse is removed and God's blessing is poured out. And so those last two selahs are there to rebut and to rebuke the blasphemies of our enemies. They want to see us fall, they want to see us remain fallen, but God says twice, with, as it were, with two exclamation marks and all the wonderful truths in between that He is with us, He is our protection, He loves us, He saves us, His blessing is upon us, exclamation mark, Selah. So we see then that whole movement in the psalm. We understand the historical context. Absalom has come to take everything away from David, including his life. And then God says, no, no. He will not succeed, and he did not succeed. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. The Lord will help you, David. 
The Lord will help you, Christian, because his blessing is upon his people. Thy blessing is upon thy people. David sings and closes that psalm with a salah. And may the Lord give us uh, that salah, that closing pause, uh, to consider what this uh, psalm says to us, that we must flee to the Lord at all times because he will hear from his holy hill and blessing is upon his people. Amen.